we can see how much we really need you. And uh, today, Lord God, some of us have, uh, throughout this week, have faced uh, uh, our mortality. Some of us have faced uh, your glory, Lord God. But whatever we face throughout this week, you have never left us nor forsake us, Lord God. And I just ask that uh, you be with us as we continue to uh, speak about you, Lord God. And we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Are we going good? Okay. And as usual, uh, we are now heading for session three. We're going to go back just a little bit because I didn't quite finish session two. But today, most of session three is, what is God? Who is the true God? Uh, who do we say Jesus Christ is? And then I think the last part of the uh, session three, who is the true church, we'll leave for next week because I don't think I'm going to get through it. And some of you have already guessed, and those who are really trekky already know what's going to happen in this. Uh, this is from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And basically, Spock's half-brother is a space evangelist, and he's healing everybody's pain. And he's getting them all united to go find God because God has called them to go find him. And they're all going for their different versions of God. So you have Romulans, humans, Klingons, and the Vulcans all converging on one particular area to find God as they've hijacked the star, starship Enterprise. And here's what happens when they find God. was not. The barriers stood between us. But we preached. Magnificent. You are the first to find me. We sought only your infinite wisdom. And how did you breach the barrier? With a starship. This starship. <laughs> Could it carry my wisdom beyond the barrier? It could, yes. And I shall make use of this starship. It will be your chariot. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> my power to every corner of creation. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, what does 
got me with a starship. Janet, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? <laughs> Has his doubts. You doubt me. I seek proof. Yeah. You don't ask the Almighty for his ID. <laughs> <laughs> God angry. Why? Why have you done this to my friend? He doubts me. He's not answered his question. What does God need with the starship? That's our clip. <laughs> You'll have to watch it. Okay. So, just to go back a little bit, like I said, we're going to do back to session uh, two uh, and talking about the Bible. Let me find my notes here. I know I have notes. Ah. Uh, one thing I just want to go over quickly is about the Bible. We want to talk in talking about the evidence for the Bible. And these are some things you can go look up on websites like equip.org, apologeticsindex.org, or answersinaction.org. And it's just talking about why is the Bible reliable. And real quickly, the Bible is reliable because of maps is usually how it's said, that there's manuscript evidence, that you have this great body of manuscripts 
showing that the Bible has been correctly translated and transmitted throughout the ages and that whatever little variances that might be in Scripture, uh, they don't change the message. So say like uh, we have uh, a passage from the book of Romans and you had a variance where if you just took one sentence that in one, one manuscript you had the first part of it was wrong but in another manuscript you had the middle part of the verse was wrong and in another manuscript you had the third part of the verse was wrong. Well, if you put all those manuscripts together you would be able to say, oh, well, this is different, this is different, this is different. But you'd also be able to see what everything is the same throughout, and you could distill what was actually said. And in some cases, for not for a whole lot of verses, that's basically what happens when you take the manuscripts. And on other uh, pieces of work, the manuscript evidence is very close to the original writings. And like some people said, well, hello. <laughs> What do you think could be the problem if you had an original manuscript, knowing human nature? Why do you think God needs a lot of copies? Somebody would try to destroy it. We screw it up. Somebody would like hold on to it and and start interpreting it for us. So so God wanted to distribute the Bible. Uh, also, what about worshiping? What if I had like one of Jesus' original sandals? You know, <laughs> people would create whole cathedrals, and you get the whole relic situation going on. But manuscript evidence is a very important understanding to knowing why the Bible is absolutely true. And then another one for understanding why the Bible is reliable and has the evidence, and that what it speaks is true, is archaeological evidence. Uh, if you go to the Smithsonian website, they, when it comes to historical evidence, people quote the Bible. Now, they might disagree about some of the his, history parts of the Bible, but for the most part, the Bible is reliable. Unlike the Book of Mormon, and the Smithsonian Institute is not a Christian organization, they have an official opinion about the Book of Mormon. At best, it's a piece of fictional Americana that was plagiarized because they know about the plagiarism problem with the Book of Mormon. And so there is no archaeological evidence whatsoever for the Book of Mormon. In fact, one of the challenges I put to Mormons, I go, you show me something that somebody dug up somewhere that proves the Book of Mormon, and I'll take all my emails and my whole address book, and I'll convert. Boy, everybody's late today. It's the Mormon God trying to strike his spaceship down. Anyway, uh, so, so the, the point is the Bible is reliable to know certain points in history. And for the things that, uh, like one of the things when I talk to people about the reliability of the Bible, they usually say, well, I disagree because it's not reliable. Well, how unreliable is it? And I go, well, let, let's gauge it up a little bit, saying, okay, for the things that are from archaeology, the things that are from history, it's very reliable, wouldn't you think, for the most part? So if, if, if somebody you can get them up to, you know, I usually change people's opinion from it's not reliable to at least 80 90% reliable, then I go, you know, there's disputable matters. You know, people dispute Jonah. People dispute the creation. People dispute uh, 
that there was even King David. People dispute how many writers there are to the book of Isaiah. There's all these quote-unquote disputable matters. But then when you talk about what Jesus says, Jesus says there's Adam and Eve. There's Noah. There's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, you know, there is a King David. And on and on, Jesus quotes. He doesn't say, and the first Isaiah says, and then the second Isaiah, and the eighth Isaiah says. He says, Isaiah wrote. So there's only one Isaiah. So you have people come up with all these unique things of why they discount the Bible. And uh, usually the manuscript evidence is fairly decent to deal with. A really good book to understand that is Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But for more simplicity... Uh, the Case for Christ is a really excellent book that talks about that, and it, it's a really enjoyable read as well. And I usually have like copies of that, and I hand it out to people because I want to talk about the same thing. And when we get to talking about the cultic mentality, you'll you'll find out this, this is jumping ahead. There's a change in things when somebody says Jesus. Do they mean the Jesus you're talking about? So you have to be on the same page. When people talk about Bible, do they mean what you're talking about and different things like that. The other part of maps is uh, prophetic evidence and the things that are prophesied in the Bible have come true 100% or yet to be fulfilled. So they're not uh, fulfilled prophecy, but there isn't any prophecy said that was wrong. And that also goes back to the idea of truth. There's no truth in the Bible that's wrong. There might be things that are debatable, but on that scale going back to the people that I've talked to, I go, well, you can believe this much is true and you can believe this much is disputable, but you have nothing in the category of absolutely wrong. So, so again, we, we can talk about the things that are not disputable first. That let God, the Holy Spirit, deal with disputable matters later. An example of that is somebody who I witnessed to for a couple of years and then he disappeared they came back and knocked on my door and basically said, hey, I became a Christian. But one of their disputes with me before was, I can't believe the Bible because I believe in evolution. I can't believe the Bible about Noah's Ark. And I told them, I go, you know what? I'm not asking you to believe that. What I'm asking you to believe is, who is Jesus Christ? Which is good leeway into what we're going to get into. And so I go, I want you to believe who Christ is. And all the other, what you call just stories and make-believe, We'll let God deal with you about that. I don't, I don't, you don't have to believe Noah's Ark in order to become a Christian. You don't have to believe the creation in order to become a Christian. I think it, it could affect how you become a Christian and how you continue your Christianity. But first, let's deal with the person who started the religion, which is Christ. And you can't have a problem with the leader. Otherwise, you'll have problems throughout. The other thing is uh, science and statistical evidence and just the probabilities calculated out to millions upon millions of fulfillment of prophecy, the continuance of manuscripts, and so forth and so on. Uh, some scripture to look at for, for these ideas is Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I said Second Timothy, right? Okay. And the other one specifically I want to look at today is Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Can somebody read that for me? Second huh. uh, Timothy 3, 13 through 17. And Second Peter 1, 16 through 21. 
1, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. What's that? No, just the Peter one. Are you going to do that one for me, Brandalea? So here it, it, it's the Apostle Peter talking to whatever audience he's writing to. And he's saying, you know what? We're not telling you myths. We're not telling you these you know, fables. What we're telling you is we're eyewitnesses to what happened with Jesus Christ. And, and, and now this points us to what the gospel is about and what the gospel is not. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. But yet, Peter, like... He throws in this story, and who, who knows what this story is about being on the mountain, seeing the glory of Christ, and all this kind of stuff. What is that usually called in the Gospels? The Transfiguration. Now, Peter has this testimony, okay? How many times have you heard him talk about this testimony? Only here. See, he didn't go going through all the, the provinces and going, here's my testimony, I saw this light. And Jesus was this light, and on, on and on, and then collect the offering. He talks about who Christ is and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And, and so, like, I grew up in a church where when we talked about interpretation of Scripture, the private interpretation of Scripture here, that meant that nobody could just tell you what, what it is. And, and I believe that. Nobody should just have the exclusive interpretation of Scripture. But the downside to that is saying, they, they could say whatever they want from Scripture. Okay? And so what this is saying, I don't think it has to do with saying you can only have one interpretation of Scripture, but the interpretation of Scripture should be that it's about Christ. So that's why I said we should be able to go through all the books of the Bible and find Christ throughout Scripture. So that Peter, when he and James and John saw the transfiguration... They had a private interpretation of the glory of Christ. They, got to, they had a private show, so to speak. And sometimes when uh, we come to church or we go to church somewhere, Christ shines in us in a certain way and we go, wow, how do I explain that to somebody else? That is a private interpretation. But now what it's saying is not in private interpretation, is scripture. It says, these are the words of God given to the prophets to shine light in the darkness, and they didn't write prophecies down just to prophesy. But they wrote this down so God could speak to you to give you a non-private interpretation of Christ's glory. So people say, oh, let's go to Pensacola. Let's go to Toronto. 
so you can see Christ's glory, so you can see his anointing. You know what you have to do? Open up the Bible and start reading, and you will find Christ's glory, and it's not a private interpretation. You don't have to go over here and over there for it. All you have to do is go to Scripture. So again, that, that's the key of Scripture is understanding you don't have to go somewhere to find Christ other than go to Scripture, and that should be plain enough. Now, here's, here's an interesting little bumper sticker that I really hate. <laughs> God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You take out the middle part of that, and then it's a good bumper sticker. God said it, that settles it. My belief in what the Bible says, again, it's about the transcendence, is what I believe is not the important part. It's what God said, and my belief based upon that, that's what I'm following. So I hope you can understand that part. Okay, the next part that we didn't quite finish was the salvation part. And I'm going to say it one more time. Salvation is by grace, and something to remember the word grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Very lovely. Okay, and in understanding grace... There's all these words that we talk about, and we talked about anointing, uh, regeneration, and the redemption or restoration. But there's all these words involved with it, and this is kind of where we, we didn't have a whole lot of time to get into. You have faith, eternal security, elect, free will, irresistible grace, uh, election, sovereignty, total depravity, limited atonement, um uh, predestination, chosen, all these words get lumped into what does salvation mean? So now here's the important part. When you read through scripture, what words are used? And a really great book, uh, let's see, I'm going to do a lot of book recommendations, is Chosen But Free by Norman Geisler. Chosen But Free by Norman Geisler. And he talks about the issues of free will and sovereignty and predestination and election and so forth. And another good one that we have in the book table for Regen is uh, Calvinism in the Balance of Scripture and Found Wanting by George Bryson. And we know George. <laughs> and he also came out with another good book, but I haven't read it yet. It's got good reviews. Uh, I think it says something about Calvinism, about being gates the, hell, the gates of hell or something like that. It's, it's, it's very odd title or the the wickedness of Calvinism something like that and that's not to say people who are Calvinistic are, are wicked but the potentiality of what happens when you become so exclusive on what what salvation is that you leave other people out that you don't want to witness to other people and then going the reversal of Arminianism saying that people can lose their salvation and be you know, unsure of their salvation and not have any assurance that they're saved and always being in doubt and fear. And, it, and I think I said this once, but I'll say it again, is, you know, I met some people. How I meet these people again is another thing. How I met these people, uh, basically, any fleshly activity or worldly activity, if Jesus Christ were to come, you would be left behind. So they actually had this thing where you can only be so many minutes on the toilet Otherwise, you could be left behind if you were in that, involved in that activity. So, needless to say, I didn't go to that church. <coughs> okay. But the point being is, you get through all these isms and things, right? 
And what does Scripture say? Does Scripture use the word predestination? Yes. Does the word talk about being chosen and elected? Yes. But again, it comes about how are you going to interpret that so it doesn't disrupt the rest of Scripture. Now, somebody says this has a name. I don't know what it is, and I've been scolded by some of my Reformed theology people because I'm not an Arminius and I'm not a Calvinist, and I fall somewhere in a very unique position, and I'm going to just say what that is, and then I can explain it all later because we're almost done talking about the salvation part, is my view of election is Christ is the elect, He's the chosen one of God. He's the one seed of Abraham promised throughout. And if you are in Christ, guess what that makes you? You're elect also. Um, and then you can talk about sovereignty, which we're going to get into because it's the will of God. So one of the things we talked about on how to be saved last time was the three types of regeneration. Is uh, People have talked about decisional regeneration. Where if I just say a prayer, therefore I'm saved. And uh, Charles Finney was a great proponent of that kind of thing in the altar calls and the mourner's bench. Uh, there's baptismal regeneration. So therefore, if I get baptized in a certain church or get baptized a certain way, and then some people adding on to it, if I get baptized in tongues, then you're saved. And then another one is, uh, and this one I made up, so... Catechismic regeneration, meaning I learned from the Word of God, and the example I gave was from the book of Acts, is here's Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. He teaches them Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah, and he has an understanding, hey, I am saved. I know who Christ is. And then he gets baptized. Okay. And to say all that, the three phases of salvation, once you get to the point of being saved, is, and here's the big words in there, justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is you are saved. Sanctification, you're being saved. And glorification is the work is done and you're completely saved. And how do you, you find all that? You read the book of Romans. You read the book of Hebrews. And that are the three phases can be found in there. It talks about here is how you are justified. You are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. How are you sanctified? By the work of the Spirit, continually working in you. And one day, Jesus Christ will return and glorify all of us, and we'll no longer have to deal with all the sin nature trying to creep up and destroy us. And so you, you have glorification. You know, maybe then there will be no more pooping, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, eye, eye problems, back problems, whatever that is. We will be changed and we'll be like him. Okay, so that's that. Now we get to the big kahuna here. We're going to talk about the Trinity. Uh, did anybody find any proofs for the Trinity for your homework assignment? What did you find? Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Um, I don't know if this applies, but it just Go ahead. Um, Deuteronomy 6 forward says the Lord their God is one. Good. Excellent one. Uh, First John 5 7. Which is? First John. First John 5 7. Yeah. Okay. 
which is? Okay, Th- those are all excellent scriptures. And, and, and what, what we want to do is, we talked about the reliability of scripture, so when we talk about something like the Trinity, because is the word Trinity in the Bible? No. Is the concept there? Yes. So we want to be able to explain the concept that we're not being heretics, and the word heretic basically means making up false doctrines or being uh, anti to the doctrines of Scripture. And I'm going to try and explain this, and any illustration used for the Trinity is not good because we're using finite things to describe something infinite. So the first part we have to do in understanding the Trinity is what is God and God is one. And in understanding that God is one, uh, let me find my papers here. I got so many papers. I don't think I lost my papers. I hope not. Ah, there we go. What is, in understanding the attributes and the nature of God, what are those attributes? Name some of those. Because this is the God we believe in. So what is the God you believe in? Omnipotent. Okay. So what does omnipotent mean? All powerful. Okay. What else? Omniscient. So what does omniscient mean? All knowing. Okay. Some more. <laughs> now he's making omnipresent. So God is everywhere. Okay. And I'm going to go through a list here. And these are things that are found in scriptures. If you want all the scriptures, we, we are going to... I, I kind of messed up because Todd sent me an email. And, and sometimes I don't look at my email every day. Everybody in the class is going to get one of these. Okay. This is one of the most excellent pamphlets about the Trinity with verses and history. And we're going to go through this. I wish we had it today, but that's okay. I'm sorry. It's my fault. I didn't look at my email. Uh, Rose Publications. And there's some websites also listed on this. But part of knowing who God is is that there's only one God. And here's his attributes and his nature. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere, holy, eternal, love, spirit, invisible, rational, personal, uh, Always existing. He's uncreated. Uh, There's only one. Immutable, transcending, sovereign, just, or he's justice. He's righteous. He's light and life-giving. And there's probably some more that I didn't get in this list. And there's scriptures for all of these things. And hopefully some of those scriptures kind of came to your mind. So the next part in understanding of the Trinity is, who is the Trinity? Answers? Huh? Carrie Ann Moss. Moss? She played Trinity. Oh. Okay. Da da da. Okay. The Trinity of the Bible. How's that? (laughs) Sorry, I wasn't specific in my question asking. So, who is the Trinity of the Bible? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these are represented in three persons. And these are not persons how we think of a person like Tony's a person, Tony's a person, Renata's a person, Jill's a person, anybody sitting in here is a person. 
we have our own identity, will, and so forth. But it's persons based on relationship within what's called the Godhead. And Godhead is, is something that's in Scripture. And so on this little triangle that I meant, made here, we have F for the Father, H for the Holy Spirit, and S for the Son. And those are represented in the Trinity. Some scriptures that we will talk about for understanding that, as I go through my convenient little chart here, uh, and going through the attributes, uh, God is eternal, okay? Does anybody have a scripture for the Father being eternal, the Son being eternal, and the Holy Spirit being eternal? Okay. He's not changing. So that would go into his immutability. Well, immutability means he doesn't lose any power, but he, he is unchanging. Right? First and last. Well, we're going to look at some of these. Uh, for eternal, if you go to Romans 16, 26 through 27, which is something we read last week. Somebody read that. We're going to play scripture popcorn here. We're going to go hilariously fast through this. Romans 16, 26 through 27. And somebody could look up Revelation 1, 17 and Hebrews 9, 14. All these wonderful scriptures. Now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, that all nations might believe and obey him. To only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Okay, so Revelation 117. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Okay, and Hebrews 914. Cool. So that one is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The the one in Hebrews, or I'm sorry, the one in Romans was about God the Father. The one in Revelation 117 is about Jesus Christ. And the one in uh, Hebrews is about the Spirit being eternal. And there's more scripture. There's a whole list of them here. We're going to go back some. I'm using my easy chart and it's not being easy. Okay. The other part of understanding is God has all these attributes. And like we were watching the Star Trek clip, what is one of the attributes that was clearly defiled within there in what we just understood of the attributes if you were following, a non, following along and not phasing out because you're a non-Trekkie? <laughs> Right, he was changing. What, what else? What's that? He wasn't all-knowing. He wasn't all-powerful because he couldn't get out from this barrier. He wasn't loving either. He wasn't loving. He wasn't omnipresent. What? what? He, was, he was mean. He was pretty mean. <laughs> and I think, 
What's that? No. We're watching Star Trek Five: Final Frontier. One of the things that I thought is very interesting is, you know, and it's kind of comical, is we should ask God for his ID. You know? Here, they're having the dialogue. You don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Yes, you do. And that's kind of the problem that we've gotten into with cults and, you know, TV evangelists and stuff. They claim all these things in the name of God, and nobody says, well, wait a minute, uh, Finnehan, why does God need to knock everybody down in the auditorium? Because he's powerful. Okay, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you, 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 people don't ask the ID thing, you know. Why does God need to take all my money? You know, because you need the Rolls Royce is the real answer. Why does God need to take us and put us in a jungle somewhere and we only eat, you know, uh, plant life, bugs, you know? We have to ask these questions. And if we understand and know the character of who God is, all these things that God is, is also in the Father, is also in the Holy Spirit, and also in the Son. But now we're going to get, uh, I have one little handout today. Did everybody get that? No? <laughs> we're going to send Jill back there to get, get one. Just one. Okay. So. <laughs> uh Basically, this is some verses that talks about Jesus equals Yahweh, that there's only one God. And one is he's the creator. And as Brenda Leah said, first and the last. And uh, he's the I am. He's the judge, king, light, rock, savior, shepherd. And if you go through this list, what do you see? Something very interesting is a parallel that happens through most of these attributes about God and about Jesus. This is a total observation question. Look at these lists of scriptures, and what do you notice as a pattern over and over again? For, huh? Uh, creator, first and last, I am, judge, king, light, rock, savior, and shepherd. But the observation is in the scriptures that are being used. What scriptures are being used over and over again? They're both old and new because we're talking about who Yahweh is and Jesus. But what particular scriptures? Okay, how about what's, what's the sameness of the scriptures in uh, Creator and the sameness of the scriptures in Shepherd? John and Isaiah. So if you want to have a good picture of who God is, understand the book of John and understand the book of Isaiah. So we're going to go to one particular one, Isaiah 9, 6, I believe it is. Or is it 6, 9? I think it's 6, 9. Let's try 6, 9. 6, 9? It's 9-6 then. Yeah. 
Where's Isaiah? Oh, here it is. <laughs> Vandals removed it from my Bible. Visigoth. Okay. So, in, in 9.6, this is a classic scripture that's used over and over again by I don't know how many cults to disprove the Trinity. And see if anybody can tell me why after, when I read it out loud here. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to uh, the increase of his government or peace, going down to verse 7. So, somebody tell me, how could that be used to try to undermine the Trinity and why? Yes, exactly. There you go. But now, because it says he's the father. So Jesus is called these things, right? But if he's being called the father, this is part of the third thing in understanding the Trinity. First is, there's only one God. Second is, there's three, dis- uh, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then there's distinction between them. So now if Jesus... The Son is also the Father, then there's no Trinity. But how can we, using good biblical study, understand that eternal Father it doesn't mean He is the Father? Anybody want to take a guess? Go ahead. Do you have scripture? I don't know where it's for it. Um, where He proceeds from the Father. You know, the whole thing of the proceeding from the Father. Okay. Okay, there, there, there are more scriptures that say, you know, I and the Father are one. So that, that might say something, but it also says that the Father is greater, right? So that, that would be it. But specifically here, for understanding eternal Father, we have to deal with Jewish idioms. Again, this understand, going back to the hermeneutics. So idiom is phrases and things that people say that they would naturally understand. So like if I say, oh, it's raining cats and dogs outside. Are there cats and dogs falling from the sky? No. It just, somebody said yes. It means that it's raining hard. Okay. Uh, so different things. We have idioms in our own language that nobody gets upset because it's raining cats and dogs. Well, who's throwing them off the roof? No. It's, yeah, see, I need so many more. Okay. So going to here, this is a really good idiom in understanding the language. So now, when we talk about the Father, what is that usually, who knows what the, the nice Greek way of saying Father is, that means Daddy God? Abba. Abba, okay. So now that's the Greek way, but it's also something that's translating over from the Hebrew way, okay? So going back, who knows the name that has the Abba in it in Hebrew? but it's a little bit morphed. I don't know. Mm, that's a good try, but it's not an Abba. Think of a person's name. Person's name. Abraham. There we go. So, so now what does Abraham mean? What does Abraham mean? Father of many nations. Okay. So did he father many nations? Yes, but it was part of the character of his name. He actually didn't think he was going to have anybody. 
Okay? So now, here's another name that has the Abba in it. So what does it mean? Abigail. It's a girl's name. Oh, there, there's a clue. Father of what? No. <laughs> She's the father of praise. So it's possible to be named father of something and not be male and not actually be the father. So when it talks about Jesus here in Isaiah 9, 6, that he's the eternal father, what could that mean he is if he's not the father? Father of eternity. He's the one who created. He's the progenitor or he's the possessor of time. So that doesn't mean he's the father. It means he's the one that created time, which would go back to him being a creator. Okay. Uh, one more scripture to that, that, that kind of, which will lead us into our next little topic and going back to the salvation thing. How about John chapter 3? Yeah, we're going to look at 3.16. Uh, we're going to do some more, and this is one of them right here. And then, like I said, we're going to have this nifty little handout. That's one scripture, but it's it's one over and over. Okay. Okay, John chapter 3. And this is one of the things we talked about before is uh, in John chapter 3, verse 5. Somebody read 3-5 for me. Okay, now this here is one of the really, you know, nurple twisted uh, scriptures for a whole lot of things where it's, you have to be baptized in water to be saved with this scripture. You have to speak in tongues to be saved with this scripture. So now what we're going to do here, both, all those groups that use that are very anti-Trinitarian. So what we have to do through here, we have to go through context and, and, and go through this. I know, my, my language is something else. Uh, so let, let's talk about the context. Who is Jesus talking to? Because I want to use this because this is familiar. But it's kind of weird that all of a sudden cults turn off their minds and anybody else who wants to torture scripture turns off their minds to context and what's going on. Who is Jesus talking to? Nicodemus, okay, and he's one of the people in the Sanhedrin, he's a teacher, okay, and what is the question that Nicodemus asked Jesus? Right, you know, well, how, how does one become born again? You know, how does one have eternal life? Now, one of the things that we talked about is give an answer about the hope that we have. So, Jesus is uh, ultimate hope, but if somebody like Nicodemus was sitting before us, well, what's the answer we give them? What was the answer Jesus gave them? You must be born again. And then you take the translation of that if you want to get really, you know, 
groovy with the, the scriptures and your hermeneutics. It means to be born from above. You must be born from God. Okay? And again, if you know who God is, you know that God gives eternal life. Now, going back to one of the premises that the people are going to use for 3.5 is, well, the way you get eternal life is speaking in tongues or being baptized in water in our particular church. But see, that goes against the attributes of God. Okay? So, very important to keep this. Now, we go specifically to 3.5, which is dealing with you must be born of the Spirit and born of water. Now, I'm going to give you some uh, different versions of what it could be. But none of those come to the conclusion you must be baptized in water or speak in tongues. Now, here's the variance of that. One is the Holy Spirit gives you birth, and it's, he's comparing natural childbirth, so that could be the water. Another one is the Holy Spirit gives you birth, and you're given birth by the Word of God, which is you're cleansed by the washing of the Word, and that the Word of God is in process, along with the Holy Spirit, to give you the birth from above. But none of those have to do with being dumped in Jesus' name only, or speaking in tongues and come out shun dying and everything else that people can, can think of. But now here's the really curious part because we're talking about the Trinity. I'm going to read this. And we have Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And I think he's the only person there. And when Nicodemus is told that he must be born of the Spirit and of water, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus uh, I'm reading from verse 9, sorry. On verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things, you do not believe. How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one who has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. So now, where's the Trinity here? What's that? Ah, very good. He says, we are, several times in here, he says, this is our testimony of what we have seen. Well, wait a minute. Is it the disciples? Because it says the testimony has come from heaven. So in order to be born from above, bless you, in order to be born from above, the testimony has to come from above. Has the disciples come from above? No. Has water baptism come from above? Speaking in tongues comes from above, but not the way that they're doing it. So what has come from above is the testimony of the Trinity. Jesus is saying, I'm representing what's above. I'm representing the Father. I'm representing the Holy Spirit. And here is our testimony. This is what we are telling you. Who knows where this kind of language is found in the Old Testament, where it says we and are and stuff like that. Genesis chapter 1. Let us make God in our image. Is God, you know, man in our image? There we go. Sorry. Bad. Bad. Okay. 
I just get excited. That in the name of the Trinity. <laughs> anyway, uh, so let us make man in our image, right? You have this language again. Is God talking about angels there? No. He's talking about his image. Which gets us to the next part of the Omni. And we'll go back to the John chapter. Is If we're made in the image of God, does that mean I can go around and create things? And speak things into being? And cause things to be created? Why not? I hear the rattling of the heads going, no, 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 no. I can make a boat that's creative, but I'm not <laughs> doing creation. Right. And that's the part that's unique to God is some of God's character or attributes are non-commutable and some are commutable. So what does the word commutable mean? They can transfer. So if you made a list of the things that God is and his attributes and his nature, what things are commutable to mankind. Love, reason. Righteousness is definitely has to be transferred over. Uh, how about being spirit? I think that's what it talks about. Let us make man in our image is he gave him a spirit. Okay? What are the things that are, that are definitely not commutable? Yeah, we're definitely not everywhere, that's for sure. Right. We're not creators. We're creative. What else? We're not all-knowing. We're definitely not infinite. We have an eternal nature to us, but it's only given to us by God. Um, we're not invisible. We're definitely not one, because there's many of us. Only God is one. Uh, we're definitely not immutable because we definitely have to rest and we lose power and so forth and so on. And we're going to get back to, to what this little red circle means over here. And we have to talk about commutable and non-commutable again. But going back to John chapter 3. So we speak that which we know and we have seen and this is our testimony. How does the testimony get established according to Jewish law? Two or three witnesses. And Jesus says, this is the witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is, I'm not witnessing on my own accord. So obviously, there's more than just Jesus talking about who he really is. And those scriptures will be definitely found in that pamphlet that we have for me. And again, I apologize for not having that in reading Todd's email. But anyway... <laughs> in verse 9 where it says testify testify, testify. right to have a valid testimony there has to be more and the only one that can testify about what's in heaven is somebody who's from there right so, so again there's more proof on that now I want to go to because we're talking a little bit about the baptism thing back on verse 14 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Where is that from? About Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness. Well, it's in the Exodus, but it's in Numbers specifically. And when you go look at that story, who, know, who knows the story off the top of their head? 
Right. And and and, the, and this is pointed to a couple times in the New Testament scriptures. If you go to 1 Corinthians 10, which is one of my favorite things, it says that they were rebellious and they grumbled against God and God sent them serpents and bit them and thousands of them died. Now here's the question. Why did the thousands of them die? Besides they got bit and were poisoned by the snakes. Did they have to die? Because of unbelief. And because they hated God. So if you go back and read the story, is they're grumbling, complaining against God. Moses intercedes on their behalf and says, God, you know, this is not a good thing. You know, people are going to talk bad about you. And God says, okay, I'm going to provide something. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a serpent, put it on a staff, and put it on a high place in the camp so that if anybody gets bit, all they have to do is look at the serpent. So you go back and read that story. Did any of them tithe faithfully before they got healed of their snake bite? Did any of them speak in tongues before they got healed of their snake bite? Did anybody get baptized in water? What was the only thing they had to do? Have the faith in God and what he provided. All they had to do was poke their head outside the tent and go, there's what God provided. But yet, thousands of them died. Why did they die? Because they didn't believe God and they hated God. Oh, going back to our thing about salvation. Did God choose certain people to die? No, he knew who would die. But they died because they hated him and they had unbelief. Did they die because they weren't baptized? No. They died because they didn't believe Christ. In a way, they were baptized, but they went through the Red Sea. Yes. They were baptized. So they were already baptized. But that wasn't the point. <laughs> and they didn't get baptized by, by, by immersion or formula or a particular church. Okay. So, but going through here, this is what Jesus points to. If you want to be saved, you're going to have to look at what happens on the cross. You're going to have to look at me. So, again, do we have to physically touch the cross in order to be saved? No, we touch it by faith. Do we, you know, have to touch the blood of Jesus? Because people say, I claim the blood. I claim the blood. <laughs> well, claim the blood, but do you know what you're saying besides sounding like you're going into a trance? You, you're, you're looking at what did God do and by faith and that grace you're receiving from it. So again, one of the things that happens with cultic teaching that we have to defend is who is God and how does one get saved? Because as soon as you start turning and tweaking that and making it twisted then you're going to be doing all kinds of weird things in order to be saved you're going to be doing all kinds of weird things in order to get to this god and that's kind of why i showed the clip of uh, star trek because finally somebody had the mentality to go wait a minute god why is god like that why is god doing that and we should always have the mentality to say well where is that in scripture but unfortunately, people take scriptures and twist them, and that's why we should have not just a, a one scripture arsenal, but we should have a great view and working knowledge of scripture. And that goes back to Sabed and Konased. We should know scripture, and we should know scripture. We should have relationship with scripture, and we should have knowledge of scripture. I think I twisted it in my head, but that's okay. And then we come to 
Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Can somebody show me the Trinity from there? Okay, so who 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 sent the Son? But going with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son, and the Son is obviously who? Jesus. And how did he send his Son? There's where we get the Holy Spirit part. He was what? He was begotten. Because it says to Mary... What you're going to bear is begotten of the Holy Spirit. So over and over again throughout Scripture, if you take the time to get the clues and unravel it, you'll see the Trinity. Uh, one, for those, uh, we're going to go to Romans and see some more Trinity there. And those of you that were in the spiritual warfare class already heard this because in the words of Robin, I took over the class. She said it was okay. Uh, Romans chapter 8. And again, remember when uh, we're talking about salvation, the key books are Romans and Hebrews, and we are saved, we're being saved, and one day we'll be completely saved. And in that process, you want to have assurance of saying, man, how am I going to make it? It's so tough. And Romans is one of the classic scriptures quoted over over again. What can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of Christ? And it says all this stuff in there. But I want us to look specifically at uh, verse 26. And I, we kind of went over this, I think, in here. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And people kind of cite this as this is why we pray in tongues and that kind of stuff. But more, what's that? Our prayer language. language. But more it's who is interceding for us? The Holy Spirit. So in distinction, is it the Holy Spirit but not the Father, not the Son, is praying for us in this verse? Okay, but now go down to the next verse, and here's where we have to use some clues, blues clues. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the spirit. Uh, mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So now, who's searching the mind of the Holy Spirit? Usually when, when, when it's God, it's usually when you just have God, it usually refers to the Father, or unless it's so undistinguishable, you just say, that's everybody doing it. But here, it's the Father searching the mind of the Holy Spirit. And what is, the, what is God the Father doing, according to verse 27? He's interceding too. Aha. Okay, now we're going to go down to verse 20, uh, 35. I'm sorry. Are we sure that the E is the Father? Are we sure that that... How do we know that that's not Christ making intercession? That's 
because we're going down to verse 30, let's see, 32. Okay, on verse 32 it says, He who do not spare his own son, which basically means we have the Father sending the Son, and who died on the cross? The Father? The Son. Did the Holy Spirit die on the cross? No. So, again, we have distinction within the Trinity. And it says, verse 32, uh, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how could we not also uh, with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charge against God's elect? God, the one who justifies? I'm losing myself here. 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he who died? Yes, Rather, he who raised him is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who's interceding for us at the right hand of God, the Father? Jesus. So you have the Trinity interceding on our behalf. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Father, and you have the Son interceding. Question. Now it could be, but but again, we we want to look at how is what's going on our behalf for us in our salvation, and and that's one of the things that could be a problem with verse 27. So again, it has to be a consistency going over and over again, but we do have a distinction, do we not? Yeah. So we have a distinction of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So. That could be. That could be one of the things. And I'm going on what I understand, and uh, I like the NAS better. And it has that clear distinction in there. Uh, which translation do you have? NIV. And I think the NIV is, uh, again, it's a phrase-by-phrase translation rather than a word-for-word translation. And so when I want to get to more exactness of what's in, a tra- uh, in the original, I, I choose NAS for that particular reason. And if I did read NIV, I wouldn't get that clear of a distinction. So I do agree with what you're saying. So I just muddied up the water. <laughs> but let's go from the parts that we do know for sure, which is verse 26 and verse, what is it, 34? 32. Who is, or it's 34. About the intercession, who is making intercession? The Spirit and Jesus. And we have the distinction of where is Jesus making this intercession? The right hand of God. But, now, is this an idiom? So is there a right hand and a left hand to who God is? Because God is what? Spirit. He's not a, a human person. He's invisible. So what does the right hand of God mean? It's prominence, it's position, it's authority. So now that goes to the next part is when we pray in Jesus' name, what does that mean? Does that mean every time we say a prayer in Jesus' name? And when we baptize in Jesus' name? We're asking for the intercession. But also, it's like saying, if I was a policeman and the lights go out for the traffic, 
and I go, well, you have to stop in the name of the law, or you're committing a crime, I say, stop in the name of the law, is my hand being raised going, stop, and I'm a policeman, actually stopping crime, actually stopping traffic? Why are people stopping? The authority, because of the uniform and so forth. So again, when we say in the name of Jesus, it's not a mantra, it's not a formula. It's saying we recognize the authority of Jesus Christ because what? Who is he? God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. Okay, so now that gets us to the next unique part. See the little red circle here? This triangle represents the nature of God. But Jesus, in his distinction, is also what? Man. So, one person in the Trinity took on an additional nature. So, what's usually the nature of man in its its non-corrupted state? Finite. Sleeps. Needs rest. You know. Not omnipotent. So here's a very strange thing. And this is what uh, what's called the, the, the hyperstatic union. Big old word. And, but you know what? Hyperstatic union is not a word exclusive. I think I just unplugged myself. Sorry. Hyperstatic uni- union is not a word exclusive to Christianity. Where am I at in time? Am I done? Almost done. Okay. Uh, hyperstatic union is not a word exclusive to Christianity because one time I said that word and the person was a chemist and he says what do you mean God is too unlike things being combined (laughs) oh now I got a better understanding what hyperstatic union means the nature of God and the nature of man are two unlike things being combined and that's why it's hard to explain sometimes that God is 100% man and 100% God. Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. Not very well, because I had trouble. Uh, yeah, so you're not going to find it in a theology book, but it's an... Ex- yeah, hyper... Hyperstatic... Union. Union I can spell. And this is one of the uniqueness within the Trinity is the Son is the only one that has another nature. Uh, Real quickly, and I'm going to finish with one clip because I'm sorry about the time. Uh, And you'll have this. This has all these scriptures laid out. I'm going to talk about some misunderstandings about the Trinity, and this will be all spelled out in here. Uh... The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, so it is a belief made up by uh, Christians in the 4th century. No, it's going to show you all the church fathers in here who believed in the Trinity. Uh, Christians believe uh, there are three gods. Well, what is the whole first part of understanding the Trinity? There's only one God. One God. We, we talked about Deuteronomy 6.4. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. And if you 
get extra special and you look into that word one, it's like a cluster of grapes. Are there more than one grape on a bunch? Yes. Okay. Uh, I also like this because when I, uh, one of the things in where I grew up is there were very adamant anti-Trinitarian cults in, in Union City where I grew up, the Apostolic Church, UPC, and Jehovah's Witness. And um, they would go through all these misunderstandings of the Trinity. And I read the Bible through specifically looking for what they said because I'm the kind of person that doesn't regurgitate very well or live on regurgitation from the pulpit or believe other people. And I always got to kick the tires. I'm the very Thomas faith kind of person. And so I need a lot of evidence. So I read the whole Bible once as a teenager just so I could have understanding. Is God one or is he Trinity? Guess what I came up with? A lot of verses that told me how much God is one, but how he expresses himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I couldn't believe those people anymore. And I, I like this little picture because St. Patrick was one of the best uh, prolific, uh, prolific in the Trinity. And he used the clover and saying how there's it's uh, one, but there's three leaflets. So that was his illustration. He evangelized for God that way. Uh, the other misunderstanding is Jesus is not God because he's only man. But that's the problem. It's just saying that he's only man. Uh, Jesus is a lesser God than the Father, which is another misunderstanding. Another misunderstanding is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are just different titles for Jesus, which is called modalism. So uh, when you talk to a oneness Pentecostal, Jesus-only uh, cult, they'll say, well, Jesus is the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus is the Son in the New Testament, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit in the church. So there's all kinds of problems with that. And so they basically say the Father did all all the creation part and Jesus is just wearing a different hat and he's come down and now he's ejected his body into space and he's come back as the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, it's just very comical and weird. Uh, one distinction you can check out, it's it's found in John and I'll, I'll get you the exact address if, but don't kill me for it. <laughs> is... Jesus told the Pharisees, this is how I know you don't know who God is. The Father judges no one, and all judgment has been given to the Son. Now, that's a very unique statement. But if you go back and look into the Old Testament, any points of judgment that happen, Jesus shows up. When Sodom and Gomorrah happens, it's Jesus. He walks with Abraham. Because that's one of the things that he told the Pharisees is, I talked with Abraham face to face. Whoops, wait a minute. How can Jesus do that unless he's eternal? Unless he always existed? Uh, so you have phrases like that showing up where there's a distinction. All sins will be forgiven against the Father and against me, but against the Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, wait a minute, why not? Because they're just, there's a great distinction in who the Holy Spirit is and his work Versus what the Father does and what Jesus uh, does. Uh, so again, a great another going back to the John 3:16, the Father loved the world. Jesus is the one who died on the cross. 
and the Holy Spirit is make makes them real in our life. Uh, so I think I'm just going to show this one, and we will be done. And then everybody will ask me all kinds of great questions. I hope. <laughs> Eject. I know I did something with a remote control. want to cry a lot watch this movie it's called I am Sam and basically it's about a father whose daughter is taken away and he's mentally handicapped So the point of that is we have to know the God that we're asking the questions to. 